0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal
1: if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. Uh, I'm really excited today because I'm joined by an NBA guru, if you want, a a guy you've read his stuff on ESPN, but he's kind of more known around the league for his work with players individually, helping develop them. And now, like, hot-selling author David Thorpe. Thanks for joining me, Coach.
0: Thanks, Craig. I appreciate you having me.
1: We're going to be talking about uh, Coach's new book, Basketball is Jazz the stories and lessons of a basketball lifer, but I, I I wanted to start with a quote pretty early on in the book that I loved and I thought kind of summed up your philosophy both about coaching and the changes that are going on in how coaches and players, I mean, coaches are relating to players and creating environments around their teams, which is is has something that's really evolved, it seems, over the last couple decades. Uh, the exact quote is, this is about when, you start, when he first started coaching players. I was convinced there was a special method to be used on all players, a simple formula that would work. Love the players up, believe in them fully, and teach them smartly. It does not sound particularly innovative, but in the 90s, coaches still thought yelling and tough love was the best way to coach kids. I think you're seeing more and more, and not just at the NBA level, but up and down, an evolution towards what you're talking about.
0: Well, wow, very insightful for you to pick that out. That That's really the crux of the book, right? Um, there's lots of X and O's in the book. There's lots of technical th- – maybe not a lot of X's and O's. More technical things on how to make shots more, how to play better defense, whatever. All, all sorts of things to help a player. I've been doing this for you know three-plus decades now. Um, but really, that's secondary, I think, to – how do we love our kids? How do we inspire them? You know, coaches are first in the business to inspire, really just like parents are in many respects. And um, it's true. You know, my high school coach, who I don't mention in the book because he wasn't worthy of mentioning, he was a decent enough man, uh, never inspired me ever. I uh, didn't really understand his role in that way. He, he, got, he got me tougher because he wasn't very nice. He was of the yoke of the that uh, you couldn't get water. Until totally told you to get water. He didn't care. Yeah. You dropped dead. You know it was a power control thing. This was the late seventies, early eighties when I was a high school player, and um, I'm so glad to say that we've evolved as a species. <laughs> uh, I don't know that everyone has. Obviously, I'm around a lot. My hunt, my son now is a ninth grade player playing varsity uh, and JV, but mostly varsity now. And so I've and I'm playing a lot of AU since sixth grade. So I see too many old school guys, even if they're young still, but I'm glad to say that there's less than there used to be more men and women who understand that we can be very tough. No, no one would ever watched me coach Kurt and think that I was a sweetheart. Uh, <laughs> if I'm trying to teach guys how to play. Uh, I'm going to be demanding. I'm going to be tough. Uh, I, I curse even sometimes around high school kids. I'm, I'm not afraid to to use four-letter words. I don't say it at them as much as with them, quite honestly, because I want them to to listen. And if you don't think kids hear curse words all the time, you're not paying attention to them. And I do pay attention to them. So I know how to get under their skin. I know how to press their buttons. But at all times, I want them to know that I'm with them, that it's not me versus them. It's me and them versus our opponent or me and them versus the sport, because the sport's hard, and we're trying to get them to master a very difficult thing, which is to play basketball against great players. So I do think that I learned early on. I was My, my, my kids, who are now in their 40s listening to this, and I'll, I'll make sure they all listen, who are dads themselves. In fact, I have one who's probably, I think he's a grandfather now, former player. Uh, he's a basketball coach too. They'll laugh at the idea that I had evolved, but <laughs> they know that over the course of a few years, when I was first coaching I recognize I need to be their best friend and their coach and not just their coach. And uh, I've gotten better at that over time. No question about
1: it. And I think that this, this is not just you, but you mentioned uh, Mike Krzyzewski as a motivator in the book. I, you know, I, and I've told this story on this podcast before a couple summers ago during team USA with microphones off and just, I think Sam Amick, and there was a few of us milling around talking to coach and we were talking about motivating today's players and how it's different. And, for people who don't know this, there isn't a more old school background than Mike Krzyzewski. I mean, no. West Point, West Point, Bobby Knight and all this. And he talked about, like he's like, today's players will still run through a wall for you like they used to, but it's no longer just I say jump and you say how high. You have to give them context. If you explain to them why you're doing this drill or why you're doing something and what the bigger picture is, and they get that, They'll still do it with energy and excitement, and, and but they're not just going to do it because you said so. It's He felt he had to evolve, and I, I think clearly he has evolved.
0: Well, first of all, thank goodness for that situation to now be the case, which I agree with, that our kids today don't just do what adults tell them. I love that because yeah. there's too many damn stupid adults out there telling them terrible things to do. That's not to say that we always want them questioning. Of course we don't. You have to earn the trust, I promise you. Coach K doesn't have to explain himself every single time to all of his players over the course of their one, two, three, or four years here. I don't have to do that with my children or my players. I had to earn their trust first. And then once you earn their trust, they'll do anything you ask until something comes up where it strikes them as weird. And I wrote right about this. Uh, forgive me, sometimes I forget which book I have in because I'm working on a second book now, but I think oh, it's in the right. first book that's the only one that's published right now. I'll have a sequel to Basketball is Jazz whenever my agent tells me it's time to release a second one because <laughs> I'm working on it now. I, I've been coaching a long time. But I have a situation where uh, I think I might have mentioned, might have been Kevin Martin, uh, where uh, I told him to... Uh, actually, it was both Kevin Martin and Luol Dang. They both didn't understand why I was working on a drill where I was having going baseline and then dribbling it back out and resetting. And they just, each of them in their own way separately, it wasn't the same day said, I don't see how this will be appropriate to my game. Can we move on? I'm like, sure. But I laughed because I had studied their game much more than they had studied themselves. They were young players at the time. And in both cases, the guys played five on five later that day and immediately saw what I was doing, which was, if you drive baseline and nothing good's happening there, which normally is the case, unless you're like LeBron, there's nothing good happening on the baseline. That's a whole other chapter called Baseline is Death. Too many good possessions die on the baseline. (laughs) I don't want my players going there almost ever. So they went baseline, and they picked their dribble up, which is even worse than going baseline to begin with, because now you're (laughs) trapped. And then they, in Kevin's case, he kind of just smiled like, oh, I get it. Like, immediately, he understood why I was having him do it. So... I don't mind them challenging me when it's appropriate. Once I've earned their trust, but until then, challenge me all you want. Uh, we've got to trust each other together. And I say, I say to my kids all the time, when uh, there's times when I don't mind you debating me, and those are the times where there's more ambiguity to something. You know, maybe maybe they don't want to ride the roller coaster when they're six. And I told my wife this once when my kids were little. We you know we live in Orlando, Florida, so Orlando is 90 minutes away. We were at Disney World two weeks a year, every year for like six straight years. My kids know it like they they know their own backyard. And there were certain rides that they didn't really feel comfortable going on and didn't want to go on them, even though we knew they'd be safe, like the Haunted Mansion, for example. And I said to my wife, Chrissy, at the time, the same instinct they have now to say no is what we hope they use and plug into when peer pressure suggests that they try something they shouldn't be trying. So... Let's not beat it out of them. However, if they need to take medicine, they need to trust us that, hey, this is something you have to do, trust mommy and daddy, or don't run in the street without looking both ways. There, there's no options to that. Yeah. They have to listen. So there's, there's you have to walk both sides of the fence as parents, same as coaches. There's certain rules that they have to listen to, but still we have to earn their trust to get them to do that. And that's to me that's just part of being an adult because our kids are smarter now. I don't think people complain – You know, the old make America great again. Part of that is back in the day where kids will do whatever you tell them. Well, why would we want that? We have really bad teachers in some cases, really bad coaches who tell their students terrible things. I want my kids to be able to challenge authority when it needs to be challenged. Do so decently. Do so with kindness. do Do so with politeness and intelligence and maturity. But don't just do something by rote because they're older than you. That's too old school for me.
1: Yeah, and a lot of this book that got to me about a little more than halfway through it. I've kind of I you were kind enough to send me a digital copy and I've been burning through it. A lot of it that gets to me though is stuff you talk about cuz you keep talking about your kids and your players as your kids in some in a lot of ways. As a parent and as a parent who's look, I've got three daughters. One is very into musical theater and and that art world. Uh one is doing competitive club soccer and we're traveling to all sorts of beautiful places where there's open fields uh, for soccer tournaments <laughs> on the weekends right. and uh, the other ones into in, into gymnastics. You talk about, with these players and with these students, The the thing that got me was the ability to create a space for them to fail and still feel loved and feel, hey, it's okay to make mistakes if I learn from them. It's okay. Things are never going to be smooth and easy, but people have my back and I will do better next time. If you can create that space for them, that's how... Whether you're talking about an NBA player or, or just your kids at home, that's how they grow. Correct.
0: So, uh, Kurt, I've been asked a lot. Uh, I've done a lot of these shows and podcasts, and I'll continue to do so to promote it. Uh, I'm happy to do and Talk to NBA, of course. I'm sure you and I will get yeah. to that some, too. Yeah. Um, I've been asked what my favorite chapter is, and it's not easy when you have 106 of them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I, Every one of them is personal to my heart in some way or, or another. But I've started thinking that my favorite one is—it's uh, called "Embrace the Suckiness," and it's very personal to me. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to get emotional here. I hope, but I might. Um, first of all, I have to give credit to the movie it came from. I didn't know it when I started quoting it a lot, but there's a movie that I adore called "Keeping the Faith" with Ben Stiller and Ed Norton. Uh, where he, Ben Stiller is a rabbi and Ed Norton's a priest, and they're best friends, and Ben Stiller is tutoring a bar mitzvah candidate – I'm Jewish, so I get that um, – on uh, chanting a prayer, and the boy just has a terrible voice, and he's afraid to sing loudly because he sounds terrible. And Ben Filler's character says, you know, yes, you suck, but embrace the suckiness. Or maybe he says embrace the suck, I don't remember. But I've always said embrace the suckiness. And for me, and I write this in the book, it comes from a, tra- it comes from a time where – my son had moved up to play, uh, I think he was eight, playing with nine, 10, 11-year-olds in uh, in baseball, and he just couldn't get a hit. He just was terrible. and He was a little afraid of the ball, um, but more, he just, his swing wasn't very good, and, and that combination's not good. And he was younger, and he didn't seem to care very much that he was striking out almost every time. And all I ever really care about, I never really worry about the consequences, it's always the process, but I, I've told coaches for years, I've done a lot of clinics and, and mentored a lot of young coaches, some of them, for now, on your professional coaches and even NBA guys, I'm happy to say. When you're old, you you mentor a lot of people that turn out to, to do some great things, and it's very rewarding to, to old people like me. Um, they, you have to get them to feel the sting if they don't feel the sting themselves. Like I didn't have to yell at my daughter, who messed up twice in one of her dance uh, performances last night. I didn't say a word to her, because she knew she messed up, and she felt terrible about it, and she'll make sure she doesn't mess up again. What do I have to yell for? If a player knows he screwed up and, and feels bad about it, what are we yelling for? So, but my son didn't seem upset that he was striking out. So I definitely would make, raise the issue that he wasn't working hard or whatever until one day he broke down crying. And he said to me, he looked at me, he's got beautiful gray-green eyes, and he looked at me and said, Dad, I just want to get a hit. And it was like a, it was like a bell rung in my head, like, okay, now we can go somewhere. Because this is what he wants. It's not what I want, it's what he wants. So I said, son listen to me. You suck at hitting. Who cares? Who cares that you suck? Let's just embrace that you suck. Let's embrace the suckiness and let's practice. We live five minutes away from our little league that has a ton of batting cages. I went and got a tee. I got. I had a ton of bat- baseballs in my garage that was being used. Let's go to work, man. Let's you and I just figure this out. And it started about a four-year love affair with me and my son through baseball where we would, every hour we could, he wanted to go to the fields and hit, and hit, and hit. We would mix in fielding and throwing and pitching and whatever. He ended up being a very high-level baseball player for his age. Uh, but unfortunately for him in baseball,
1: the first time I let him play AU basketball, <laughs> uh, that, he finished his
0: season for AU as our leadoff hitter, and in baseball down here, of course, is amazing. Yeah. Every player that played with him uh, made their high school baseball team. This is in sixth grade now that he stopped playing. He stopped the second that season ended uh, and has never touched a baseball since because basketball to him is his sport. But, but Kurt, I have to tell you that those years, I mean, I really miss the years we spent in the hot Florida sun just swinging and swinging and swinging. And I went and got him a, a hitting coach so I could just be his dad. And I could teach anything if I know what's happening. I listened to his baseball coaches. I worked with him on just what they wanted him to work on. I was his best friend, I was his cheerleader, I was not his coach, and afterwards we'd go get Slurpees, I wrote this in the book, we'd go get Slurpees, and it was a, tradition thing, a traditional thing he and I did, we'd work our butts off for 90 minutes or so, go get Slurpees at a 7-Eleven five minutes away, and I still have every baseball, I have the tee, we had two tees actually, I gave one away to a neighbor, I kept the other, I have his last glove, I have his baseball bat, he doesn't even know I have it Kirk. but I have it in my closet, <laughs> It's, it's memories of a golden time for he and I where I could just be his best friend and be his biggest cheerleader. And we just have to build laboratories for our kids to fail in The Scientists fail way more often than they succeed, as you know. Yep. So do writers, right? We, oh, yeah. we delete, 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 delete. Well, why aren't we letting our kids do that without fear? And so that's really what I try to talk about with it. And I think that my NBA guys would tell you um, when they do really great, I'm happy if they call me. They they typically do because they're nice people. But they have to call me when they suck. They have to call me when they fail. They have to call me when they're down. I, I've taken those phone calls from 30-year-old professionals bawling their eyes out because they lost their last playoff game and they weren't any good. And they're not used to losing. Most of these guys have won so much in their life, it's still jarring to them when they lose a really important game. But only one team wins their last game. Everyone else has to lose. These are McDonald's All-Americans. And, I mean, Corey Brewer once called me, crying his eyes out when Denver got beat by Golden State. He had a great year for them. They, they had a great season. He's like, Coach, I'm, you know, I'm McDonald's All-American. I won two national championships. I don't lose these games. And, and I really hurt my team in this last game. He was just done. He was tired. And uh, I'm lo- I love that he called me. And you live to fight another day. Uh, you have to give them room to fail uh, if they're ever going to have a chance to succeed long term.
1: Thank you. That that's that is by the way just that's just great life lessons and that's that's I think one of the fun parts about this book. Uh, you also taught you say something and you've said this before in conversations we've had. It goes against what a lot of people think about the NBA because when you think of a league where professional sports league where coaches really make a difference, the NFL comes up first because you've got a week to game plan and I can strategize to go at a certain player or go to certain weakness and and design plays and set up stuff. But you call the NBA really a coaches' league, and a lot of people think it, that there's some. Hey, Phil Jackson just rolls the ball out there, and Eric Spoelstra just rolled the ball out there, or whatever. And you you think that coaches have a much bigger impact than than people realize in this league?
0: Oh, I don't. I don't think it. I mean, it's a fact, uh, and metrics prove that out. There's a reason why Mark Cuban, for example, years ago hired Rick Carlisle. Yes, his his. <laughs> analytics team did an exhaustive study. He was ahead of the game on this and he found that no coach had impacted a player more uh than Rick Carl on the NBA is interesting because there is so much player movement. You can track how guys do playing for one coach compared to the other because players move and coaches move, right? Right. Um I don't say it's a coaches league at the expense of the player. LeBron James top three, top four all time, top two, top one, when he's all said and done, probably. Um, he, he he is going to win no matter who coaches him. I think that's fair to say. Uh, there's just not many of those guys around. The truth is, there's not many great coaches either, but it's easier to find them than, because you can hire them. They're always free agents when their contracts are up. Players are different. You have to draft them first. Uh, I, I point out Draymond Green was almost headed to Poland when he was playing for Mark Jackson, right? right? I know for a fact that he was being offered as part of a trade, and he was almost a throw-in. Uh, the, the team that, that was offered the trade didn't take the trade because they didn't need Draymond Green. He wasn't the major part of that trade anyway. He was averaging 6-5 and five in his second year in the league after two years of college. Uh, Steve Kerr has a lot to do with Draymond being one of the best players in the world right now uh Kawhi Leonard could have gone to what I contend is half the half the the teams in the league and been an average player at best pop saw if you remember this Kurt I'm sure you do when he was a rookie pop said publicly this guy's gonna be the face of the franchise one day." that was crazy talk he was the 15th pick in the draft he wasn't a lottery pick he never shot better than I think 27 percent from three in his two years in college he wasn't Remember, they always, remember the, the so-called experts like to say, you have to be great at at least one thing to make the NBA, which is such ridiculousness. Kawhi was great at nothing coming out of college. Nothing. His vertical jump was below 30 of two feet. So it wasn't even a great athlete. He was nothing. You know what? He had big hands. He was really long. He was really tall. So if that's how you define an NBA prospect, good luck with that. There's lots of those guys that yeah. don't make the NBA. Pop saw something in him and... This goes back to my original point about being an inspiration business. I think he inspired Kawhi to work. And then you also know my Royal Jelly idea, which I have a chapter in the book about Royal Jelly. You've got to feed these players something special to get them to think they're going to be special. And he did that. No question he did that. Well, I don't just want to credit Pop. The, The Spurs have helped create the monster that is Kawhi Leonard, and that's what he is now. And I mean that in a good way. So I think that, when I say it's a coaches league, Brad Stevens is winning with very average talent as it relates to what top three teams in a conference tend to have. Uh, we look at what Spolster is doing now in Miami, right? We saw what he did when he had the big three. Well, he doesn't have the big any right now. And and they're really coming around. Uh, what Quinn Snyder's done in Utah for Rudy Gobert, for Gordon Hayward, I could go on and on. The, there are There's just no end for the, the list of players who we thought was X and it turned out to be Y. And, and I think coaches are, I mean, the players have to work super hard and be, and, and obviously they deserve the most of the credit, but it's not in a vacuum. The coaches make a difference. And I, I want to call out something you might've read. Cause I think it's early in the book where I talk about the movie, um, uh, the Will Smith movie, men in black.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Where, Tommy Lee Jones sits Will Smith on a park bench right after Will Smith found out for the first time in this fictional movie that we are not alone in the universe. And Tommy Lee Jones says 1,500 years ago, everyone just knew that the Earth was the center of the universe. And 500 years ago, everyone just knew that the world was flat. Imagine what we'll know tomorrow. That is absolutely defines how I look at coaching. Uh, Everyone just knew, Kurt, that Harrison Barnes was a below average role player on the best team in the world. Rick Carlisle didn't think that, right? Harrison Barnes, we don't know what he's going to be yet. I'm not going to tell you right now. He can't be an all-star. He's just finding out who he can be. Everyone just knew Rudy Gobert was this tall, soft Frenchman. Well, guess what? He's the best, defensive player on the planet and he's a pretty good rebounder also yeah so uh and a finisher this guy's a uh, he should have been an all-star this year he's going to be an all-star going forward he's i think he's easily going to win defensive player of the year if people really pay attention uh we have to stop thinking we know anything especially early in a player's career and that goes to why i say it's a coach's league because the smart coaches get that and they believe their their teams can accomplish a lot more than what it looks like on paper.
1: And there's a lot of coaches. It, it, it's a different job in some ways for different people in the sense that like the job, the role, and, and some guys can adapt to different roles better. And Spolster is probably the best example of this. He's developed these players. He has is, he is started, you know, worked with a very different thing now than it was with the big three. But he had a lot of coaching to do. I think people sleep on how much coaching he had to do with that big three to get them all to buy into a system where they could work together, uh, you know, to, to start playing up-tempo and spacing the floor and some of the stuff they were doing that that didn't come naturally to them. They, I mean, LeBron and Wade played next to each other, not with each other, for, for a while before they started to really piece it together.
0: So there, I don't know if this has been authenticated. I think it has been. But there were reports those first few months of year one, and maybe... Maybe our buddy Brian Windhorst wrote it. Someone someone at ESPN wrote it in Miami at the time where Spolstra was working with LeBron on some things on the court in five-on-five setting, and LeBron said, I've won, I think it was two MVP awards playing this way. And Spolstra reminded him, and no championships. Uh, So you're exactly right. There had to be buy-in. And uh, like I said, players... These days are much smarter than than when we were growing up. Uh, they're going to question, as they should. He, supposed had a belief at, at how we were going to play, and honestly, they they really they really should have won three championships. Nothing against Dallas's championship in that first year. that yeah. they, I call them the Super Friends. LeBron was just horrible. He, I couldn't believe what I was watching, uh, and they lost. And Dallas won fair and square, obviously, but Miami was the better team. I don't think Miami should have won in year four. I thought the Spurs played the best basketball in the history of basketball, and earned that. But it took that, it took
1: that took team. that loss that year before to to bring them to correct.
0: Yeah, you're right. And in, in obviously, in an heroic fashion, and dramatic fashion, that it, to beat that Miami team, Popovich had to do the best coaching job and create the best team I think that ever was assembled in terms of uh, those games. That was the best team I think that ever played in those in those in that four game stretch. Well, maybe it's four and five is what it was. Um, so, but still, Sponsor deserves credit, and he's doing it again. Um, I mean, I think Stan Van Gundy and the job he did in Orlando was magical. Um, you don't have to win the championship to show that you've done an incredible job. Every year we see evidence of that, um, and uh, and we'll see this year. You know, every, everyone just knew. Come on, everyone just knew last year that Golden State was going to win the championship. Yep. So they were down three-one Oklahoma City, and then everyone just knew they were going to win the championship. When they were up three-one against Cleveland, and Cleveland, the world champs, fair and square, uh, circumstances occurred. Life happens. Stuff happens. You got to give yourself a chance, and that's where great coaches get it. They they push their team to to be in a position where a little luck has to happen, and we can win a championship. That's that's what the best coaches do.
1: And they've also got this job now where they're going to get pulled in a few different directions. They're going to see things with their eyes, and their coaches are going to see things with their eyes watching tape they're going to get information from their analytics department that sometimes will contradict this, or sometimes will suggest different new things. Uh, They are going to hear different things from the players and Lord knows the agents um, about, you know, how their players are being used and what have you. And there, I guess this comes back to the basketball of jazz because I I thought, I love that analogy. I actually have a shirt that I picked up in new Orleans um, and where not this time in new Orleans for all-star, but a few times back when I was there for something else. And, it just says jazz is democracy. And in a, both yeah. cases, in an ideal world, you are, this person's going to take the lead. Now you've got to synthesize a lot of different voices and you've got to come to compromises on certain things. And you've, you've got to work as a, a unit to make it on a, you know, whether it's jazz or basketball, it's got to come together that way. And that's hard sometimes for coaches to synergize everything thrown at them.
0: Oh, no, brilliant. Yeah. made a couple of brilliant points there. Yeah, of course you're right. And, uh, One of the ironies of LeBron's nickname, the King, is that basketball is no longer about a monarchy on the court. It once was at the NBA level because of the illegal defensive rules that you could just find the isolation every time and it's just too hard to help. It really was. There's people out there who think that defense were better than because of hand-checking. Well, first of all, go watch the tape. There (laughs) weren't a lot of hand-checking going on nearly as often as you'd think because if you can handshake me, I can grab you right back and and, and nullify mitigate those, that those hands on me by throwing my arms through yours.
1: Jordan was uh, pretty good at that.
0: So, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, um, yeah, of course, handshaking made a difference, and yes, it was much more physical uh, as you attacked the basket. No doubt of that. But normally, guys weren't shying away just because you got hit. They, you know, free throw shooting was still prevalent back then too. Um, today is different. You can orient your defense to where the threat is. And so it has to be a much more democratic offense now. John Cheney wrote probably my favorite basketball book. I have a few. Winning is an Attitude. He was the great Temple coach. Yeah. And his offenses were monarchies. The, the Kings, he, he, he wrote this. I'd rather have my best player taking a bad shot than my other players taking a good shot. And it turns out he was probably wrong. And in the NBA, he was definitely wrong. At Temple, maybe not, because maybe he couldn't get enough good players to surround his Kings with, but in the NBA, we know now you're better off with one of the other players taking an open shot. And so LeBron is the King, but really what he's the King of is that getting the open player, the good shot, because the attention that he draws, I always call him, he, he, he plays chess. He, he moves pieces around the chessboard and he's got the ability to make a play from everyone on the court because he's bigger, stronger, longer, faster than everyone. And he sees everything. Uh, and so he moves guys around and then makes you pay. Not everyone does that because they can't. The Warriors play differently. The Spurs play differently. Although with Kawhi, it's a bit of a monarchy now just because Kawhi is so unguardable. Um, you, it, but still, even then, a defense can pick their poison. And if they decide we're not going to let Kawhi get 40, he's not going to get it. He's going to have to make the right play, which is where Pop comes in. And, of course, he's more than one to do so. And then that guy's willing to make the next right play. You remember, Kurt, going back to LeBron early in his career, Remember, he passed up an open shot. Yes. Maybe not. Not open. Not open shot. He passed up a shot at the top of Dri- the a
1: drive, Yeah, driving shot, as I remember, if I'm thinking of the yeah. right. Do you one. remember who he threw it to in the corner, right oh, corner? I do not remember the name suddenly. You'll remember. Daniel Marshall. That's right. Who, who, by the way, could shoot the rock. Like, Danielle yeah. was a oh, right. very good player.
0: He got hammered because yeah. he didn't want to take that shot. And now we know, because we look at advanced level analytics, that they were wrong yeah. he was right and that brings me to another point players normally are wrong not right most players who think they know what their game is they're wrong that's where when you talk about analytics it's not necessarily i think to me coaches tend to be more right than not when their eyes see something uh what i always say is and i'm going back you know we had when i first started as pan we had john hollinger yeah so i was able to see something and then what I would typically do is check the analytics or just call my friend John to see if I was right. And then more, more often than not, I was. I wasn't always right or maybe I didn't always see as much as I needed to see. That, that certainly happened a lot. But what I learned is how often players were wrong, that they, what they thought was right was just the opposite of the reality. And that goes back to what we talked about with trust. They had to, I had to develop them a trust with them that they could see that what I saw was right based on evidence, not just my eyes and walk them through the better decision. And mostly, cool. and I say mostly because not, not in every case, I have a chapter in the book about my time with Steph Marbury, just a week in, in Pittsburgh at one of the best 5 star camps ever. We had nine NBA players, one week at camp. It was great. And Steph didn't want to be told anything. And he, but he was rare. He was also incredible, by the way. <laughs> uh, the, he was the most fundamental. So going into the week, I thought he would be this flashy New York City guy. I was so wrong. He was incredibly fundamentally sound and the most physical guard I'd ever seen in my life to that point, by far. He, I, used to, I still say to this day, there are two types of players when we break things down in terms of physicality. There are players that can absorb incredible punishment and mm-hmm. not see any effect on their game. And there are players who can dish it out. And normally, and this won't surprise you, the players that can dish it out tend to be the bigger, stronger guys. Big guys, you know.
1: LeBron. LeBron.
0: Marcus, all whatever. Yeah. You can figure it out. And then there are players who can take it. And Alan Iverson was great. You know, I had trained Kevin Martin. You could foul him all you want. He was happy to go to the free throw line 20 times, and he was not going to stop driving. Steph yeah. Seth Marbury dished it out as a little guard. Yeah. He was incredible. He just didn't want to be told what to do. He was rare. Most guys want, they thirst for that guidance and so we have to tell them when they're wrong and that's where these coaches today have to bring that balance of they know what the analytics say the players are not going to like it you can't just beat them up you've got to inspire them you got to teach them you got to guide them towards playing the way you think it's the right way it doesn't mean you can't be tough like i said walk into my gym at any time when i'm coaching uh, now my the au kids we have are all ninth and tenth grade we have a ninth grade 10th grade 11th grade team that i help uh, there's there's no one would call me a shrinking violet in that gym. My players are not soft and nor am I soft with them. Uh, but I'm not a jerk. I, I, I might curse and I might challenge them, but they're never not going to come back in the gym because I embarrass them. That's not going to happen ever. In fact, I've even told some of the coaches that I work with, let me be the jerk. Let me be the ass because I won't be. You don't know, I'll say to them, you don't know how to do it yet. You are, you are a jerk of, of 70s and 80s style. You be their cheerleader. You be their inspiration. Let me handle the rough stuff because I can get away with it. I'm the NBA guy coaching high school kids. They love me. I've earned that love. Uh, and you know what? If I started just being a jerk, they would stop loving me. If they, if they thought that I stopped caring about them, then I'd just be another old guy that had some success and thought I was better than them. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be their best friend. I'm going to be the guy texting them after a game saying, hey, what a great play you made. Or more importantly, tonight was a struggle that's figured out together tomorrow. That's what I'm going to do behind the scenes to show that who cares if I coach the NBA players? I care about them. And that's all these kids want is to know that I'm watching them and not just focus on NBA guys. They're all the same to me. They are, we have to treat all our kids that way, and they'll come around.
1: I wanted to ask you about a couple of the coaches put in uh, – some of the developmental situations this year. I I, Brett Brown's job security in Philadelphia becomes an off-season topic every year just because in part he was not hired by the people now who have the power in Philadelphia. But what have you thought of his job and, and the work he's done there?
0: I, I really love Sam Hinkie in a lot of respects. We're, we're definitely friends. Uh, we just were texting each other recently. Um, I have a, I have a, an analytics question for him that he said, just call me. We'll talk about it. So, so we're friends. Um, I do not think he did a great. I thought the process was amazing. I do not think he did anything good for Brett Brown in that it's impossible to develop young players only.
1: Yeah. Not
0: that I think that old players should be mentors. I don't believe that. Old players want to play. They don't want to be teaching young kids. They want to play themselves. They want to win and get paid and whatever. Uh, it's hard just to coach young guys because it's it's the blind leading the blind. In fact, is an example of that. And by the way, I love. I think Brett Brown's great. I really think he can be a great coach. I'm I'm behind him a thousand percent. Uh, there's a chapter in my book about a, a player that no one will know called Justin Cecil. And Justin was training with me the summer before his freshman year of college. We were at IMG that summer with all my pro guys. And he was going to North Florida, which at the time was a brand spanking new Division I school, uh, moved up from Division II. And they were literally the worst team in America for Division I going into that year. And so this was a player going on scholarship to the worst Division I team. So by no means was he an NBA prospect. But when he played five on five with our NBA guys, he looked like he should be going to Duke of Carolina. Six seven, athletic as heck, could shoot the three, tip dunked everything, crazy motor made easy plays, could play in space. He looked like he was an NBA prospect. But then some days I had him play with our college kids, and we had, like, the Powell kid that's at Dallas now. In fact, he was in high school initially, Dwight Powell. Uh, We had a lot of college kids that were, you know, mid to high major players. And Justin looked like a guy going to the worst Division I team in America. He was terrible. Uh, Surrounded by great players that knew how to play, he looked amazing. That's what the Sixers are, a bunch of Justin Cecil's. (laughs) <laughs> Just a bunch of young kids of no idea what they're doing. And I feel for Brett Brown. I I, I look at Jeremy Grant, who's playing better
1: in Oklahoma City, yep. because he's playing with veteran players. So I
0: think ultimately Sam's process, I, I hated it because it was flouting the system, but I totally get it. And I feel like if he had stayed another five years, we would he would be offered the, the, the most expensive job, the highest paying job in the NBA, because he's fantastic. He took advantage of what he could, and I and unfortunately didn't let him take a ch- to finish it out, and that's fine. Owners can do that, but someone's going to. Like I've already said, that the, the, the Kings should hire him uh, because he would bring some process to a processless team. We we can fairly say. Yeah, I don't um, know. So, the thing
1: is, I think Sam might be too smart to take that job, but that's another discussion.
0: Maybe so. He would have <laughs> to. Yeah, he would have to get a comfort zone with with the owner and all that. But I think Brett. So I think Brett's really challenged with that. I also think, and this is not just against Sam. I think that. This is the area that I am an expert in. I don't think I'm an expert in very much, even with, as it relates to basketball. I think there's a there's a limit to my expertise. One of them is player development. Um, people think I'm the first guy ever to do it. Certainly for a, for a career, starting back in the early 90s. Who knows if I really was, but I'm definitely one of the first in the world to do it. And I've been doing it a long time because of that. There's there's an art to it, and there's a science to it, which I have a chapter in there called Art and Science. Uh, and I don't think many GMs understand it. They don't get it. I see them hiring players that really have no idea how to now coach as a player development guy. They don't get it. They don't understand the art and science behind it. And I don't know the Sixers got it. I don't think they necessarily figured out how to help players that way. Uh, Brett Brown's job should not just be developing players in terms of player development individually. He's got to develop the team thing, and it's hard with nothing but young guys. But I sus- I suspect... As his guys mature, if Embiid hadn't gotten hurt, that'd have been nice to see. I think we'll start seeing the chops he has. Cause I think he's very good.
1: I think there may be no better illustration of the the type of, of the dichotomy of type of coaches and the growth uh, uh in this style than with the Lakers, with with the move from you know yeah. uh, from Byron Scott to Luke Walton. Where well, we'll see how good Luke Walton ultimately is as a coach. It's way too early to tell, but. He's getting through to those guys in a way that they had tuned out. And I I don't, look, I don't think it's too strong a word to use in in D'Angelo Russell's case. They hated (laughs) Byron Scott.
0: Oh, yeah. I I think think Byron's always been a terrible coach. And I say that as one of his biggest fans, the player. I adored him as a player. I was a big Laker fan. Uh, With Norm Nixon and Magic Johnson and then Byron, when when they traded Norm for Byron. For you old people who will remember that.
1: That was a a big deal because, can you imagine the, the... backlash now because it was yeah. magic pushed norm nixon out because norm nixon was a point guard so byron was a better fit i mean to be fair and norm nixon was a very good player um you can't yeah. undersell but byron yeah. was a great fit next to magic so anyway
0: he wasn't and, and magic really helped byron um in my next book i'll talk about something he did for byron where he he helped him understand that to win a championship we don't just need you to shoot jump shots you're a really athletic dude and they're taking your jump shot away because you can only really shoot. So go to the rack. You're not going to score. They're going to hammer you. But that's fine. We'll get free throws out of it, and it's one less foul they can commit before they have to sit down with too many fouls. And Magic really brought that out of Byron, which was great. Um, I don't know yet how good Luke is. It's fair to say. He certainly was great in Golden State with a, with a well-oiled machine. I watched the Lakers the last couple games they played. They're horrendous. Yeah. They're dumb. They're just dumb players. They have no idea what they're doing. They're kids. They're just absolute kids out there. I love them. Don't get me wrong. If they were a stock, I'm all in. I really – I don't know if Magic's any good. We'll find out. Obviously, he was my favorite player of all time. So I'm rooting for him, no doubt about it. I think the NBA's better when the Lakers are great uh, For just because I'm old school that way. Um, I'm a huge Julius Randle fan. I think Russell's really talented. I think Ingram's really talented. I love those guys. They just don't know how to play. And Clarkson is – it's really hard to watch Jordan Clarkson play. And I'm a fan. I watched him in Chicago yeah, pre draft camp.
1: No, you're right, I, though. He's he 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 can he does something that drives the Lakers coaches nuts, but drives anybody who watches a lot of him nuts.
0: He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. I, I love him. I thought I thought of Chicago he was a steal. I was uh I was talking to my buddy who was running the Grizzlies then, uh Jason Levian. I thought they should really look at him. Um I still think he's got a lot of talent upside, but watching Chris Paul play or watching Mike no. Conley play and then watching Jordan Clarkson is like watching a, a great college team and then go and watch middle school basketball. He has no idea what he's doing. But but that's where Luke's got to just coach and coach and coach. He is a positive guy. I think he's got him playing the right way schematically by design, uh, but they just can't execute it yet. It's going to be a work in progress. and But I do think they have a good future.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it is definitely going to be a work in progress. And that was – one of those guys I was going to bring up, but we'll maybe have to save it for another day. Is there? I don't think I appreciated Chris Paul fully until you know he came to the Clippers in Los Angeles, where I'm based, and I got to see more of him, night in and night out in person, um, some a lot, and just like talk about a guy playing chess. Talk about a guy who yeah. just sees it and gets it. And like I know he doesn't want to coach afterwards, but man, he's just got that instinctual feel for, and and an intellectual feel for the game that's just so much fun to watch and I think I I bring this up all the time people talk about Kobe and the 2008 Olympics and the the game in you know China and beating Spain go watch the second half of that game yeah Kobe puts up big numbers at the end Chris Paul absolutely controls the entire tempo of that second half he owns that game and sets the US up for the win
0: yeah so uh, and I think I mentioned in my book that this, maybe the smartest player I ever coached, uh, in, for pro guys, was Udonis Haslam. Is Udinese Haslam? He, this guy played for Frank Martin in high school. Frank is now a top twenty-five coach at South Carolina. They're in and out of the top twenty-five, but they'll make the tournament again this year. It looks like he's really a great coach. And then he played for Billy Donovan. We know how pretty Billy's pretty good. Yeah, he's. And then he played for Stan Van Gundy. And then he played for Pat Riley, and then he played for Eric Spolstra. And I like to say that I think I taught him a little bit. I don't think I compare to any of those guys uh, in terms of how much impact I had on Udonis. It's fair to say that I didn't have the impact of those guys. They had him for a lot longer. But he's a brilliant basketball guy. But he's not a point guard. The smartest point guards I've seen in two decades have been Chris Paul and Chauncey Billups, and I would probably say LeBron because uh, yeah. he can call, he can be any position. Those guys, I used to call um, Chauncey Billups robo point guard. He had a computer chip in his brain where he could just read the pick and roll or the or the the elevator screen action for Rip, and he would just spit out instantaneously where the best decision to go with the ball was. Uh, and I miss watching players because, it, you know, like Chauncey, he was that special. Um, Chris Paul's a little more fluid maybe, different player. Yeah. But maybe maybe the best player in the world right now when, when he's healthy uh, in his own way. He's really, in terms of impacting a game, he's, he's about as high as you can get on both ends. And um, truly a brilliant player. I, I, to be fair, I worked with my son to shoot the ball like Steph Curry. He just has a natural, yeah. my son's natural form is like Curry's, which is just easy. Um, it's just an easy looking shot. Shooting is supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be robotic. But who I want him most to play like would be Chris Paul, and where he doesn't, where my son fails right now, he's 15 years old. He's not. He doesn't want to kill you to win. Chris Paul does, oh, yeah. and you don't realize it. Uh, you you do now. I think we see more than ever how competitive Chris Paul is. But I've always considered him to be one of the most competitive players in the in, in the league. Uh, uh, he just handles it so beautifully, whereas Demarcus Cousins doesn't. Right, <laughs> it's, it's the opposite approach. Paul is smoldering inside to win and I and I, I want to stoke that in my son more and more because it is a it's not a, it's you know, ultimately winning is not art it's a science Either you have more than the other team or you don't points wise and and Chris Paul really gets that he, he's incredible to watch
1: yeah and you're right he is not a guy that wears it on his sleeve in the I don't know Kobe Bryant Kevin Garnett yeah. kind of right. sense but right <laughs> yeah just anything, competitive at anything Super and everything like, guys. Coach, I could actually talk basketball with you all day, um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, that's not how the podcast system works. So I want to thank you for joining us. You can get basketball and jazz. I know I saw it on Amazon where it is selling like hotcakes. Is it available anywhere and everywhere, basically? Or No,
0: it's so I have an exclusive deal right now with Amazon. Oh, wow. You can get the, pa- can get the paperback there. Uh, and I'm happy to say that today it's still the number one selling basketball coaching book in America. Um, who knows what happened tomorrow but it is there now and you can get the digital version on Kindle. Any You are at the to have an Amazon device. You can have any device and download the Kindle app. It's free and you can have it delivered to you instantaneously. The book can be sent in 24 hours uh, and uh, I'm really excited to hear what people are saying. Parents are loving it which is really one of the reasons why I wrote it. I wanted to help parents talk to their kids more about how to be, uh, whatever sport they play, it have to be basketball. A lot of this stuff is universal uh, where, where we try to guide our kids into doing the right thing but certainly it's a basketball book and so for those that love the game as a fan as a coach as a player uh, I hope that it speaks to you and um and uh like I said I'm working on the next one right
1: now well thanks a lot coach of course you can also catch his work um at ESPN you're in on their podcast and doing a lot of stuff for them and kind of and that seems to ramp up around the playoffs when they lean on you a little bit more and heading into the draft so uh, we'll be seeing a lot more of you there, and of course, he's at the Pro Training Center. If if you were just thinking, "Hey, I'm in Florida and my kid needs help," he's at the Pro Training Center. Um, it's probably a little more complex than that, but you know, uh, <laughs> you can <laughs> you can find him there. Uh, again, thanks for doing this, Coach. I look forward to seeing you soon uh, around the league somewhere.
0: I I look forward to. I enjoy seeing you every summer too in Vegas. I appreciate this, Kurt,
1: very much. Oh, anytime, Coach. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Of course, you can catch us the uh, NBC Sports Pro Basketball Talk podcast on iTunes. You can subscribe there. You can comment there. Uh, You can go to the Stitcher app for your phone if you haven't downloaded that to help organize your podcasts. I use it. It's it's fantastic for keeping tabs on the variety of podcasts I like to listen to, not just all the great basketball ones out there, but beyond that. And of course, NBCSports.com, where you can see my work, all the Pro Basketball Talk work, and this podcast is along with all the other podcasts from NBC sports, lots of great stuff. I mean, I know this is a busy time with the NFL combines coming up the draft. Nobody, no league is as good as the NFL at making the draft a whole second season. Uh, there's a lot of information there and a lot of podcasts coming out. Plus if you go to AudioBoom.com, find the NBC sports page and CSN page, there's podcasts not only from us and College Basketball Talk at NBC and, and heading into March Madness. You should be listening. The College Ball Basketball Talk podcast with Rob Dawson and stuff is phenomenal. It's going to be a go-to source for you during the tournament so your bracket doesn't get wiped out on Friday, <laughs> the first Friday. Mine, mine, I'm hoping, gets through the first Thursday, frankly. You can, of course, like I said, go to Audio Boom. It's all there, too. All the NBC Sports podcasts. Check it all out. Thanks for listening, and we will be back soon with another Pro Basketball Talk podcast.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway.